This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. Today is an open topic show. We'll have emails we will address on some various topics. We've got some money-saving tips and a suggestion to calm your financial fears. But most of all, we want to hear your personal finance questions this morning. Contact us by email. It's money at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Nancy. Hard to believe that August is here already. Uh, what fin- oh, my goodness. Yes. What uh, financial news are you hearing? Well, we just heard at the uh, top of the hour that we've seen a decrease in retail spending in August. It dropped 1.1%. And we have to remember that consumer spending is the engine of our economy. And what we look at first is the measure of consumer confidence. Uh, There's another survey called consumer sentiment. And we'd already seen that drop. And a lot of that, we believe, is related to the rise of the Delta variant as people get a little nervous. We'd already seen credit card balances declining as people are spending less. Travel spending is dropping. Um, We're hopeful that this will um, ease up later and feel that maybe we'll be able to to absorb this and this will settle out, but it is something that will affect all of us and will slow down and cause a, a blip in our recovery. Um, interesting. Consumer confidence, I think that's a term a lot of us heard, but maybe not quite fully understand what it is. So does that mean that uh, people are comfortable enough with their financial situation that, they're, that they'll, they go out and spend money? Right. Well, there are a couple of surveys, and um, it is talking to people and asking them how they're feeling, how confident they are about uh, their situation. And certainly, when we feel good about our jobs, we feel good about our family situation, we go out and spend. And we saw a drop in that this last month of about 13%. It was a pretty big drop and feel that that's just all related to this concern, again, about this virus um, and a new way that has popped up. And that will cause people to pull in. I certainly have felt it in my own family. We've changed travel plans. We've adjusted what we are doing and trying to wait this out. But uh, as we listen to economists, they feel like we'll be able to absorb this and this will settle out, but we're waiting to see. All right, uh, Ryder, good morning. What about uh, financial news here in the first of the month uh, that you've uh, been paying attention to? Good morning. Uh, Well, I I I always like to look at uh, kind of – always kind of fun to look at large world events and see how might those or might they not affect our economy. And over the weekend, one of the largest world events would – have been our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover there, and not too surprisingly, that doesn't have that did not have a big effect on our markets. But one thing it got me thinking about was very often you hear folks say something like, "Oh, a war is good for the economy," and they will cite. World War II and the huge, huge, huge economic boom that followed. And I had actually done a little bit of research into this a number of years ago, and 
most of that, or all of that, would be attributed to the huge, huge additional government spending. And so we've seen government spending in recent years contributing a lot to the economy, and that's absolutely what happened in World War II. And because when you think about it, wars are very destructive. You know, they they destroy invested all of the investments that you've made over the past few years, those get destroyed. People die. People stop spending for years. Um, so this will be, of course, much more of an issue in the country where it's being fought. But it's kind of a, a myth that going to war is, is good for the economy. Yes, there's a lot of spending there, but these days that spending doesn't really – that's not a lot of additional spending in the U.S., and it doesn't have it doesn't have the same effect um, as and just to give an example, in all of the years in all of the the wars we've had post 9/11, which was obviously what kicked off the Afghanistan war, we've only spent about one to two percent of our economy has been spent on military related or war related spending. So it's as far as additional spending goes. This is really insignificant to us. So uh, not necessarily something that's affecting the markets today, but something that uh, I believe is, is a myth that people still hold in their minds. Uh, war uh, does not, I would say, does not drive economic growth. Um, here is a question that might be better off for our Wednesday Everyday Tech Show, but um, recently I had two sort of uh, differing experiences with I guess you call it spoof calls, where someone uses a number in your area to get you to answer the phone, and then it, it comes to be like a sales call. Um, <clears throat> I got a call the other day from someone, and I said, you know, hello, hello, and they said, I had a missed call from this number. You know, who is this? And I'm like, I didn't do this. Sorry. might have been a scam or something. And then <clears throat> I got a call yesterday and answered the phone and didn't hear anything. And I was expecting a call from a service person, so I was a bit concerned that I'd missed it. And I called that number back and eventually got someone's answering machine. So it's just curious. Do either of you know when they spoof calls, are they actually grabbing real people's phone numbers to, to hide behind? Sometimes they are, certainly. And yeah. I had a similar experience uh, in the past couple of weeks where somebody called me, and they were very upset and insisting that I had been calling them. I, you know... I forget what I say at this point, but that was – it's weird for me to – for my number to have been spoofed and something happened, even if it was just you know, repeated calls that really upset the man on the other end of the line. And and I, it's to the point for me where if I do not recognize the number, I simply don't answer yeah, I've gotten to that point, and again, I think that, well, it's funny to me because it's like I know that, but then you look at that and like, well, this could be someone I, you know, so I'm very weak about my resolve. Yes. Sometimes <laughs> you're expecting something. You never know. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, at one time, too, I had one of those automatic things where an unknown call goes directly to voicemail, but again, if you, you know, a doctor's office or like I was looking for a service appointment, sometimes you really can't, you know, just not answer any of the unknown number calls, so... Uh, no. I think that's a great question for everyday tech, and I look forward to uh, hearing their answer. All right. I might uh, pose that. I will tune in tomorrow at, at uh, 10 a.m. That's right. Wednesdays there at 10 a.m., everyday tech on MPB Think Radio. So um, let's do a quick email here before our first break. Uh, and this one is from a listener in Van Cleve, a writer who asked, do you have to cancel credit cards or are accounts automatically closed 
after a period of inactivity? Yes, so I did look into that a little bit, and that's a good question, and my answer will kind of depend on what that person wants to do with their credit card. In general, credit card companies can close an account if it has not been used for a certain period of time. It's going to be largely dictated by the policy of that card company. Oftentimes, if they view you as a good client, maybe you have another card, which you do, you're spending, maybe you have two cards with one company and one you just haven't used. If you're someone they view as a good client, they'll probably keep that open. If it is a free card and you never spend on it and you haven't spent on it, they don't anticipate you being a a good client, they will probably lean towards closing that after a certain period. Maybe I found typically 12 to 18 months is when they will start taking action. So that is a policy of the card company. one thing I would say is if you if you want to close a card, I would do that proactively. One thing you don't want to happen is any miscellaneous charge or fee landing on that card and then the card being closed while it had a small balance that you just forgot about, never realized was there and you that was sent off to collections that was that was discharged and that's worse than just having a line closed i would stay on top of it close it when you be the one who is in control you know close it on your terms not not the card company's terms uh, so, Nancy, that's uh, when you're making a decision about when to close an account, I guess on one side it's good to keep it open for your credit score, but on the other side uh, you're not using it, A. B, there might be some sort of fraud or someone might try to you know, get that from you. What would you suggest to someone about the decision of when to, if or if, to uh, close an, a, a credit card account? Well, if you're not looking to take a loan to purchase a house, buy a car, those kinds of things, Um, then you're not worried about a temporary ding on your credit report by closing these accounts. And I am really all for simplifying. So I think the fewer cards you have to keep up with, uh, the less of what you're talking about could happen with identity theft or somebody using the card, or you just um, missing, which has happened to me before, where there's an annual charge and you miss it because you think, that card is not active any longer. So I just think it's better for your financial life if you just call that list and get it down to the cards that you really use. Very good. If you have a question for our experts, send an email to money at mpbonline.org. We've got an open topic today. What are some good bargains in August? We'll have some suggestions for you. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio.
information presented on Money Talks is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult a financial advisor or any other qualified professional for guidance about your personal finance questions. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Our website, moneytalks.mpbonline.org, is one way to hear past Money Talks broadcasts. You can also download the MPB public media app so that you can listen on your iPhone or Android phone to all the local Think Radio programs on your schedule. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives, and Reiner Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. The website NerdWallet suggests you look for good deals on back-to-school supplies. Not surprising here in August. Uh, small items such as pencils and expensive ones like laptops. So now is the time to get those back-to-school bargains. I wanted to dig a little bit more into credit scores and credit reports, but we have a caller on the line. So first, let's visit with Dennis from Tupelo. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Is there a way to find out what cards you may have opened in your name that you've forgotten about? Yes, you can uh, pull a credit report. And uh, you can go to annualcreditreport.com and pull a listing. It will show any open lines of credit that you have out there. And you're right, a lot of people have things hanging out there that they've forgotten about. Um, I've had situations where I thought I closed a card, I requested it be closed, and I still see it sitting on my credit report. So you simply just look at that credit report, and it's going to be pretty thick depending on how long you've had uh, credit stringing out behind you, and start to go through that list. And one more time, who, what is that organization or contact? Um, you go to uh, annualcreditreport.com, and you can Dot get com. a free credit report. Thank you so much. Good luck. Thanks, uh, Dennis. Thank Bye-bye. Good to hear from you this morning. Next on the line, let's uh, stay on the phones, and I think it's Earl has called in today. Good morning. Uh, oh, sorry, my bad. Earl's uh, in the queue, so we'll get to Earl here in just a minute. Uh, so, yeah, Nancy, the uh, your credit report has all your – it's in t- your entire credit history, so it has all your open uh, credit accounts, but it also would have any credit accounts that you've closed in the past. Is that right? That's correct. Anything that you've paid off. So you might see a house that you purchased 10 years ago and sold it uh, at some point. It's going to be listed there of anything that is closed. So your entire history. It's not going to have a credit score. It's just going to have the raw data. And every reporting agency will calculate their own score based on their equation for doing that. So, Ryder, who should check their credit report, maybe how frequently, and, and why do you need to keep track of that? 
I think a lot of people have reason to check their credit report. One, if you, one important one is if you are checking to see if there has been any identity theft on on your report. Uh, anybody using your identity to apply for credit um, under your name would be one of the most common reasons we recommend folks look at it. Of course. It, I don't know how frequently one might want to do it. Once a year would probably be frequently enough. I know there are a lot of services that are now offering like a weekly look at it. I think that's probably too frequent unless you are monitoring very closely for identity theft. And again, the only identity theft this is going to check is if somebody is accessing credit, if somebody is taking out a loan using your name. So again, if that is a very high concern of you of yours more frequently is better as nancy mentioned you can get a free credit report annually i think that is frequent enough although there are three credit reporting agencies equifax um, transunion and experian where you can get a report from each of those so you can spread those out over the year if you like and so the, the identity theft issue is, is a big one. Folks who are, say, trying to clean up their credit or get their credit ready for a big event like applying for a mortgage, they may want to look at that, especially if you've got rejected recently from applying for a credit card or applying for some loan, then it's going to be very useful to look in there and see, well, is there something outstanding? Is there something very old? What What is the thing? that is holding me back there? Or, you know, simply, do I just not have enough credit history? There's a lot of services that now that go along with these. Most folks' credit cards will offer these services. Even budgeting apps like Mint will uh, give you a credit report and some analysis on that as well. And again, it's annualcreditreport.com, and if you don't have access to the Internet, you can also arrange to have one mailed to you by calling one. 877-322-8228. So 877-322-8228 or annualcreditreport.com. I jumped the gun earlier, but Earl is now ready to go and on the air. Earl, thanks for joining us. What do you have today? Well, I, I'm trying to make a decision on to sell a piece of property or continue on and rent it out. I'm 86 years old. I do not have uh, liquid assets, cash, but I've got a lot of property. I've got close to $800,000 in properties that I own paid for. I'm 86 years old. I live in Memphis. My wife lives in Mississippi, and she's on me to sell everything up here and move down there. We've been, you know, I go down there once in a while. I owe $90,000 in credit cards, and the reason why, because during the COVID vaccine, I had to take care of family, grandkids, and that, but, uh, I want to pay those credit cards off, and I was going to get a go ahead and get a loan on the and 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 rent the house back out. But I, I I'm 86. I don't I'm not doing too well physically, you know. My question is this: What I do feel the house is is appraised for like two hundred and forty thousand dollars. I have a buyer that has offered me two hundred thousand dollars for it, as is. They'll pay all the closing on it. And uh, I don't know whether to take it or rent it back out or put it on the market and sell it. But if I put it on the market, I have to pay closing and who knows what. 
So you think I'd be foolish to go ahead and just take take the two hundred thousand, pay my ninety thousand in credit cards, and it would leave me like a hundred and ten thousand dollars, and I'd still have five other houses. Boy, that's a lot. Well, the first what? I was—that's a lot going on, Earl. I would say the first thing is at your age, it is important to have liquid assets. Because mm-hmm. you could have some big health event that's going to suck down a lot of money in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So you need access to liquid assets, whether that's selling some of your property and cashing out and putting that money on the sideline or using your property, leveraging your property to get loans. Certainly that 90000 in credit card debt needs to go away fast. Um, Go back and look at the interest that you're paying on that credit card. And um, I don't know exactly what they are, but the average is somewhere around 50. Yeah, they're they're all about 10, 12%. I got Bank of America card and and that, and they they charged me about 12%. Of course, the thing has been this, the way I looked at it, they they really hadn't cost me anything because I have rental properties and the rent, you know, the money I take in, Pay, you know, paid them off. But I need—I never had it that high. But I've had grandchildren that they lost their jobs and that. I've got one house here in Memphis that I have a my older daughter in. She's 52 years old, but she's mentally handicapped, and uh, so I keep her in there. I said I don't want to put her in a home or nothing, but she she gets she only gets a little Social Security. So I was holding that house, and she lives there. I get I get no income out of it at all, you know. So. Well, uh, Certainly, that but, makes sense to hold on to that property. but And your rates yeah. on your credit card are excellent, which means you do have excellent credit. But if you look at 10 to 12% on a credit card, if you took a mortgage out on a, that property, you'd probably be paying 3 to 4% on it. So you need to think about, do I leverage some of that and shift my loans to my real properties, my houses, and off of my credit cards? Or do I go ahead and sell? Now, the question about selling this one piece of property, you have an appraisal of 240000 I always say when it comes to selling property or anything for that matter, you only know what it's worth when two people are on your doorstep offering you money for that. You have one person there saying 200000 So you are correct. If you tried to put this on the market, you have to think about what are the costs, all the selling costs that would be involved. And how important it is is it for you to go ahead and get that ninety thousand of credit cards off your back, and then free up some cash so that you can use it as you age and as your family members have needs along the way. Um, it sounds like you might be in a little bit of a fire sale situation, but only you know what that particular market is for that house in your area. Well, and in, re- in, in, in Memphis, the houses around it, they never stay on the market but about four days. And, okay. and the average price they've gone for is 285000 well, in that case, I would suggest you just go ahead and talk to a real estate agent. It doesn't cost anything to do that. Mm-hmm. And get an assessment for what they realistically think that house could be sold for if it's going quickly in that area. And then they can also calculate all of the selling costs so you'll know what would be left in your pocket uh, in a realistic way and how does that compare with this offer you're getting now. 
see, this person that made me this offer, I already sold them two other rental properties I've had for 25 years. Uh, last November, I sold them to them for a hundred thousand dollars, and they they bought them. And then they said, "Well, how about we'd like to buy that house?" And the house I live in is paid for, and these houses here are going for about three twenty-five. The thing is, whatever I sell them for, I'm gonna make money because I've had these properties for years. The house they offered me two hundred thousand. I've I've had it for fifty years. I bought it in nineteen sixty-eight. You know what the market was was then. You know, well, and that's the yeah. That's the other thing you're going to have to think about is when you start selling those rental houses. It's not like a primary residence. You're going to have to pay tax on the capital gain. So whoever helps you with your taxes may need to look at that as well. And you just need to think about all those costs that are involved. All right, Earl, appreciate your phone call this morning. This is Money Talks. You can send us an email. It's money at mpbonline.org. An open topic show today with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. What are some other good deals you may get in August at stores? We'll have that for you next. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Monday Talks is MPB Think Radio's personal finance broadcast. Kevin Farrell, along with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They're both chartered financial analysts. Ryder holds the Certificate in Investment Performance Measurement from the CFA Institute. So the website NerdWallet has some other bargains in August on outdoor products. August may be a good month uh, for lawnmowers and other seasonal outdoor equipment. Just a brief thing. In, a lawnmower to me is amazing because I treat my lawnmower in the worst possible way. No maintenance. Just drag it out there and use it. And the thing has worked year after year after year. So whoever invented or designed or whatever, the lawnmower engine uh, certainly receives props in my book. That's for sure. Maybe they designed them with folks like you <laughs> in mind, Kevin. I think that they did. So, And it's not the lawnmower's fault, although, you know, it's associated with something that not a whole lot of people like to do, so that might have something to Absolutely. do Absolutely. Hey, we've got another caller on the line, so we're going to say good morning to Lucy, who's called in from Hattiesburg. Lucy, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Hi. Um, yeah, I have a question. So, we have paid off all of our debts in the last several years, and we have no open accounts. We've closed everything, and I'm just wondering, how long does it take until your credit score is incalculable and goes to basically zero? I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that, Lucy, but when you close an account, it does not immediately fall off your credit report. Keep in mind, it takes it's a process of going away. Things 
fall off after about seven years of being closed. So all of the kind of information that it's gathered, it's from today to seven years back. So if you closed everything, paid off all your debts in seven years, you would probably have, yes, a blank credit report. Now, I don't know exactly what would happen to your score in that case. Um, but I guess that's what I'm asking is when does your yeah. score go to basically zero because they can't calculate it? I, well, I, I, would, I would guess seven years okay. would, would be the thing. I, but I, I guess the thing that I don't know, and that's, I think that's a very good question, I'm definitely going to do a little more research on that, is, of course, before you've ever applied for credit, before you have anything on your credit report, you know, you're 18 years old, then you don't have a credit score, you don't have a credit history, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if it's exactly the same if you've kind of lived your credit life and, and just, I guess, moved, moved on from your credit life. That's a very good question to see that I'll definitely look into a little bit more. Okay. Well, right now I'm just waiting. Yes, yes. You are definitely in the waiting stage right now. But hopefully I'll have a I'll have a better answer next week if you keep listening. Sure. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Nancy. Also, though, um, Nancy doesn't. Uh, Lucy called from Patty. You're sorry, um, Nancy. Isn't your history always a part of your credit score? So even if you closed out and zeroed out everything, doesn't your credit history factor into a score? Can a score get to zero? I guess is the bottom line question. Gosh, I I don't know. Um, I know from looking at my own credit report that there was a lot of really old stuff there, things that I had forgotten about that still were sitting there. Now, it may not be calculated uh, or used in their equation to calculate my score, but it seems that if you still have some history that they can say, we can see that this person takes out loans and pays off loans, um, that would be something. All right, so a good question, Lucy, from Hattiesburg. And, Ryder, if you would, do a little research for us, and maybe get, we'll, we'll talk again uh, next Tuesday and see what you found out about that. That is really an interesting uh, question. Nancy, when, and our next email was from Cynthia asking about I-bonds. What exactly is an I-bond? Well, uh, of course, right now we're all talking about inflation and concern about rising prices and how do you protect against inflation. Well, one of the ways is through something called an I-bond. We actually have two types of bonds that are issued by the U.S. government that offer some inflation protection. The I-bond, of course, the I stands for inflation. Um, these are savings bonds. Savings bonds started with letter designations. We started with an A. Right now we have E's, double E's, we have double H's, and then I, again, for inflation. They pay interest every six months, and the interest on an I-bond is adjusted for any type of inflation. So if you're in an inflationary environment, an I-bond is a winner. It protects you against that. It's a little bit of a hedge. The other type of inflation bond issued by the U.S. government is called a TIP. And this TIP, um, instead of the interest being adjusted for inflation, then the principal is adjusted for inflation. So they work a little bit differently. 
I-bonds you can purchase through the Treasury Direct program. They only came about in 1998, so they're pretty new. But you buy them directly from the U.S. government. Uh, I would suggest maybe going into a bank, or you can go online to the Treasury Direct website and purchase them there. They are not traded on a secondary exchange. You can't then you know, sell them to another person who wants to buy it. You can cash them out. You need to watch your timeline where you might lose some interest if you've uh, owned them less than five years. But a tip, on the other hand, you can sell on a secondary exchange. So that's a little bit different as well. So um, two different ways to protect against inflation. Another way that we also talk about as far as protecting against inflation, but it does have more risk because these bonds issued by the U.S. government are very, um, very, um, they are not risky. Let's put it that way. Uh, you're going to, you're going to get your money back. But another way to protect against inflation is through good dividend-paying stocks because those companies will naturally raise their dividends as prices increase, and that's one way you can hedge against inflation. Um, so because I own an iPhone and an iPad, can I get a bargain on an iBond? No, it's not the same <laughs> I. Rats. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody has financial fears. Um, here's one that you might have uh, felt. Uh, something terrible happening to me or my partner. If loved ones depend on you, if you depend on another breadwinner in your family, it's time to figure out where you'd stand financially if there was an early death. So, Nancy, let's start with you again. So how would you begin to suggest someone uh, deal with, with that fear? Well, and that's where insurance comes into play. We have insurance that protects our property, car insurance, house insurance. Uh, we have insurance that protects against any health events, health insurance. And life insurance is really income insurance. And so for any growing young family, one of the things we sit down and talk about is, you know, who are the earners in that family? And whose income does that family depend on? How much is that income? And what other assets does that family have? Generally, as you start to age and build your own investment portfolio, your own savings, then you don't need that insurance to protect your earnings because you've built up your own pot of money that can cover the loss of that income. And we also don't see that need when we have somebody who's retired. You know, they're drawing a pension. Um, they uh, have Social Security. So most of the time, they no longer need that income or life insurance. But certainly, if I have a young family, if they have children, we're looking at what would it take to replace that income and get that family to the point where they can stand on their own. So, Ryder, from the breadwinner point of view, uh, in terms of organizing, what could you do to kind of ease fears of your family financially uh, if you're the breadwinner? I think organizing documents is one of the most important things you can do. So, importantly, have a list of one emergency contacts you know who has who has a copy of your will who is the person you have leaned on for tax advice for financial advice they will have a lot of information about your finances that other that are going to be useful to to your beneficiaries also just a list of accounts where do you bank where do you keep your investments where is your 401k where are all of your other insurance information? And this is something that can be updated maybe once a year because 
things change over a year, and maybe you'll want to put a, a fresh statement with things. Um, an important thing as well that is, is, isn't is talked about as much, besides just having beneficiaries, making sure your estate plan is laid out the way you want it to be, making sure that the people you want to receive your money are beneficiaries of your accounts. If you have a trust, that they're you know, correctly in your trust as needs be. And as Nancy mentioned, if you have a growing family, make sure you don't leave one of the kids off, unless you want to, of course. <laughs> but w- one thing that's very important to do is to have conversations with those beneficiaries. And of course, you want them to be age and relationship appropriate. You don't need to tell your three-year-old kid what your net worth is and how much insurance coverage you have. And you don't need to tell your maybe your cousin who might be handling some of it what your net worth is. But you need to tell them what you want to happen, what, how you have it set up, where to find this this envelope with all of your documents. Um, All of the organization and preparation and planning is going to be useless if you don't tell anybody about it. So have those conversations because you're passing on more than just, especially to your children and to your family, you're passing on more than just your money. You're passing on all the consequences of having that money. Uh, Think of owning a house. You're passing on the maintenance of that house. You're passing on the mortgage on that house. Uh, Think about passing on an IRA. You're passing on that money, but you're also passing on the tax burden of paying uh, the taxes when you withdraw money from there. So there's a lot more to it, but you're also passing on your values and the things that the things that you want to see your money accomplish. You need to make sure you're passing those things on, those ideals and values and goals to your children or your spouse or your beneficiaries. We'll have an, uh, we are in an open topic show today. We've got one more suggestion for August bargains, and we'll have that for you next. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. I'm glad you found our show Money Talks. This is Kevin Farrell, and I'm here with Dr. Nancy Lotrick-Janderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Pat, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. Here's a reminder, every Tuesday at 10 a.m., listen live to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Always follows Money Talks. The website NerdWallet has a list of the best deals each month. They suggest finding a swimsuit in August. You could put it back in the drawer for next year or here in the South, a couple of more months uh, of warm weather, and you could still get some use out of it. we got some calls to get to, so begin again on the phone line with Caroline in Ocean Springs. Good morning. You're on the air with us. 
Hi, Caroline. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I heard of a program yesterday and wondered if y'all are familiar with it or know anyone who's used it. It is funeral assistance for persons who have passed on with COVID-19 through FEMA. Yes, um, I have heard of this. Um, have you heard? Yes. And anyone uh, used it? In my own family, uh, my mother-in-law died last year of uh, COVID. And uh, my husband went through the process. Um, there's no way to do this online. You have to make a phone call. It is through FEMA. He spent quite a long time on the phone. They're supposed to cover, I think, up to 15000 In her case, they had uh, burial insurance. So there wasn't that much left beyond that. But he was applying for that and was quite frustrated, uh, spent a long time answering a lot of questions. You have to submit a death certificate. It has to list COVID on there. Um, you have to list, um, provide your receipts from the expense of burial. And uh, frankly, we have not heard back from them at all. Wow. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it is an it is a program. It was first instituted last year up to 9,000 under the Trump administration, expanded under Biden to this larger amount, I think 15, 12 or 15. Um, but what I've been reading about it is that they are have been very, very slow to send those funds out. And our own personal experience has not been good. But try. Okay. I would try. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Caroline. Good to hear from you this morning. Next on the line is Marianne calling from Jackson. Good morning, Marianne. Good morning. Go ahead. I'd like to ask Dr. Anderson about her opinion of an older person putting all assets into some sort of a trust. I think it's designed mainly to avoid probate. But are there some disadvantages that go along with that? Well, um, I, I get this question a lot, and most of the time it comes after people go to meetings with attorneys who are basically trying to drum up business and get you to sign up for a trust. Um, the trust they're talking about most of the time is a revocable or living trust. It does not protect you against any kind of estate taxes, but very few people these days have to worry about estate taxes. And what they sell you on is, oh, you don't have to go through probate. Well, probate is really not that big of a deal. Um, the biggest disadvantage is the expense of setting up a trust. You know, you may be talking $5,000 versus doing a simple will. Now, I do encourage this for people who have some unusual situations. So, so for instance, if you have something unusual in your family um, that you need to line out that won't be covered by a basic will, then that's a good place for a trust. Another good place for one of these is if you have real property, houses, land, in more than one state. And so um, because probate goes through each state, then if you do have properties in more than one state, you have to probate in each state versus if you had it in all in one revocable trust name, that would make it easier. So just think about what's your particular situation before you then decide to take on that big of an expense and uh, make sure it's really necessary for your family and your assets. Thank you. 
Thanks, Marianne, for your call. This is Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. The Motley Fool website recently took a survey and found five money-saving hacks and lessons readers learned during the pandemic. Ryder, I think you have access to the list. What's uh, one of the ones that your favorite from that list? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of kind of standard things that we might talk about a lot. Oh, if you cook at home, then it's cheaper than eating out. Um, you can fix your own drinks, and it's cheaper than going to a bar, things like that. One of the most important things I found was they talked about your needs versus wants and suggested, oh, if you're doing online shopping, put stuff in your cart and then let it sit for a few days. And this is a good way of identifying what's important to you. What are your values? What do you really truly need? And what do you really truly value a lot versus what was maybe a spur of the moment thing? So I would say that's a good idea, kind of filling up your online shopping cart, waiting a couple days. And if you're not jazzed about the things in your cart or you've kind of forgotten about it, just just don't buy those things. If you don't need them or you don't really care about them, it's not important to you, it's not important enough for you to spend money on, then don't worry about. Identifying those values can go a lot further than just saying, oh, well, I cooked my own salad today, and that saved me $3. Really being in touch with what's important to you, and importantly, what is not important to you. What, What are things that you realize you've spent money on, but you didn't get any pleasure out of you didn't you didn't enjoy having you didn't get any use out of it and identifying those things so you don't repeat those mistakes in the future uh we have a show monday morning at nine deep south dining and Ryder, i don't believe they've ever talked about cooked salad on there before <laughs> well i mean maybe maybe you're not exactly cooking the salad but no, well you know plus some, there are something salads. There something are... there you know <laughs> There are some salads that uh, that need to be cooked, and one of my favorite is uh, the wilted lettuce salad. So that's a, a cooking there. So I'm sorry that for, for someone who likes for someone who likes cooking as much as I do. I, I had a really hard time of thinking <laughs> of an example of what to cook. So uh, Nancy, what about on that list of uh, the five uh, money saving tips from the Motley Fool? Which one uh, caught your eye? Well, it was really interesting to watch the savings rates um, climb over this last year and a half. I mean, we went as high as 20%. We're never that high. And now some of that came because we were getting stimulus payments and people were not spending them, which is what the intent was. Um, but people were just staying home. We we cut out travel plans. We stayed closer to home. Um, we had game night instead of going out. Uh, we cooked at home. All of those things saved us a lot. We found we just weren't spending as much. And that's why we're a little disappointed now. We, we had this big surge as we, oh, gosh, we can get out of the house. We can go to restaurants. We can do all these things. And we started to see our spending climb dramatically. And now we're pulling back because we're worried we're going back to this uh, next wave with the Delta variant. So, yeah, you can save a lot, um, but I like Ryder's uh, philosophy of a balance and what's really important to you. Uh, Right now, I'm just dying to get out to more restaurants. I'm tired of figuring out what to cook every night. You know, the one on the list here about uh, skipping a pricey gym membership, and, Nancy, that reminds us that maybe uh, just take a time every once in a while to go through and see what all your automatic uh, debits to your account are and, and make sure those are all still things that you're doing or taking advantage of. 
Well, I know one that I didn't save money on, and that's my streaming services over the pandemic. <laughs> I kept adding them because that's the only thing that kept us going. That's going to wrap us up for today. Money Talks is a production of MPB Think Radio, funded in part by generous financial support from you. To hear today's show or a previous show, go to moneytalks.mpbonline.org or listen to the podcast by searching for Money Talks on your preferred podcasting app. Our show is produced by Liz Gill and our call screener this morning with Lisa Lancaster. So for Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson and Ryder Taft, I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us every Tuesday at 9 for Money Talks, heard only on MPB Think Radio. podcast.